This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Fred Allen Wolf. Dr. Wolf is a physicist, writer, and lecturer who earned his PhD in theoretical physics at UCLA in 1963. He was featured in the groundbreaking film What the Bleep Do We Know? and has written many popular books on physics, including the National Book Award winning Taking the Quantum Leap. That sounds true, we call Dr. Fred Allen Wolf. Dr. Quantum, and we have worked with Dr. Quantum to create several audio titles, including Dr. Quantum Presents Do-It-Yourself Time Travel, A User's Guide to Your Universe, and Meet the Real Creator, You. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dr. Quantum and I spoke about three life-changing insights from quantum physics. We also spoke about complementary observation identifying with the mind of God, and recognizing that everything is made of light. Here's my conversation with Dr. Quantum. Now I'm speaking with Dr. Quantum, is that right? Yes, you may call me that, or you may call me Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, but don't call me late for dinner, as the old Fred Allen joke used to go. And you've created a a program with us called A User's Guide to Your Universe. And what I'd like to know, Dr. Quantum, is if you had to tell me the three most important discoveries, revelations, insights from quantum physics that will actually change my life, that really will make a difference to me, that I just have to know, what are they? Wow. Um, do I have about uh, three years to think about it? No, I'm only kidding. Uh, what are the three most important things? Well, let's start with number one. The most important thing I can think of that you need to know from quantum physics is that the universe is not made of solid stuff, but is made from the acts of consciousness which are brought to bear upon it. And since you, as a human being, are a conscious, hopefully conscious human being, that means that you, whether you like it or not, are affecting the universe by your presence and your actions of awareness, your actions of consciousness. That seems to be a conclusion that quantum physicists have been reluctant to come to, but seem to be ever drawing towards as we move into the 21st century. So that's number one. Right. Let's pause for a moment because I want to ask you a a question about that, if I can, which is acts of consciousness. Well, humans have acts of consciousness. I I imagine animals do as well. Is the whole universe generating these acts of consciousness? This is the best picture we have right now. It's not necessarily the final picture, but it's the best picture we have right now. The best picture we have right now is that matter itself is not made of solid, little, 
hunks. It's not itself material. Matter seems to be made of light, and this light spins like a whirling dervish and interacts with something which we call in physics the Higgs field, which seems to be an invisible field that prevails and pervades all of space and time. And I look at it as the mind of God, uh, as a God mind. And it seems to bring into being the existence of solid hunks of matter and the awareness that there are solid hunks of wet, solid hunks of matter. So both the material world and the awareness of the material world arise together. And so the way that works, the way it seems to work, is at the deepest level, it seems to be a very highly intelligent, but basically non-caring in the sense of worrying about what you need to know or what somebody else needs to know, but not, but, but caring in the sense of making sure that a matrix of possibilities is formed so that everybody can get into the act, so to speak. It's kind of a, dem- a democratic matrix formation. Uh, that that seems to be what's, what, what appears to be happening. And uh, that gives human beings an opportunity to alter and change at a much greater macroscopic level the events of their lives. Okay. I think I might be with you for number one. Uh, maybe you could just restate it and let me know how knowing this actually has changed your life and could change mine, and then we'll move on to number two. Okay, well, the first thing that this brings to bear when you finally cognate and recognize what it means is that any label or any attachment you have, and this now goes into Buddhist and uh, ancient mystical theology, if you will, But any attachment that you have to a name, a process, a way of being, a way of thinking about yourself, and any of those things are themselves constructs of this field. And they're not permanent. They're not fixed. They're not defined to such an extent that they cannot be changed by your own actions to change them. And I think... This is probably the most important uh, thing to know is that you can change and that the physical universe isn't preventing you from making those changes. In fact, it says that you're going to be changing even if you don't want to change. So there's a, there's a battle going on, if you will, with the will uh, to maintain a status quo and this kind of chaotic bubbling up, which is changing things all the time. And that gives us the nature of time, it gives us the nature of consciousness, it gives us the nature of what it is to be a human being. I don't know if that explained it any shortly, but I maybe, maybe I'm elaborating too much. No, I think that's good. Okay, so the first insight from quantum physics is that we live in a field of consciousness and all acts of consciousness are always changing, influencing, creating fluid movement. Something like that? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be fluid motion, uh, fluid movement. It could be sudden pops. In my books, I call them popping the quiff. And quiff is, is a euphemism for quantum wave function, which is the field of possibility, which suddenly changes when you 
have a recognition or you carry out an act or you become consciously aware of something, that action that you take then, called popping the quiff, is, can be sudden and discontinuous. It doesn't have to be a flow in which things are gradually changing. It could be pop and it's big jump, quantum leap. Okay, very cool, but I didn't quite follow the quiff. Can you explain that a little slower? Yes, uh, it's a euphemism. It stands for, it's, it's, it's spelled Q-W-F, and it's, it stands for quantum wave function. <clears throat> it's, the fee- it, it's the name that physicists have given to the probability field which exists and from which all material processes arise. And we pop the quiff when... Popping the quiff means that what, what, since the quiff is a field of possibility or a field of, po- of probability, it means it contains within itself both po- all the different kinds of possibilities. For example, let's take, for example, a coin, a simple, ordinary coin. Uh, if the coin were, say, on the size of an atom, it would have two sides, head and tail. Uh, and if it were a real coin, I mean, if it were a solid coin as we have our n- normal coins as we see them, it would have a head showing or a tail showing. But in the quiff world, both head and tails are showing simultaneously until an action of observation, that's where you come into the picture, observes. And at that point, it pops from being both head and tails to being head or tails. Okay. I think I understand the power of acts of consciousness from this yes. example. The power is really that you get... This is a little bit confusing. People think there's just one thing you can do is just choose to act and it'll happen. It doesn't work that way. There are complementary ways of acting. There are complementary ways of observing. And if you choose to observe in a certain kind of way, then you will only get the actions which pop into existence from that kind of way of observing. If you choose to observe in a complementary way, and I'll give you some examples of what I mean in a moment, if you choose to observe in a complementary way, then things will pop into existence which fit that way of observing. A typical example, and this is a metaphor, but it may be actually what's happening inside of a human being, is we use feelings and thoughts. We tend to feel about things a certain way, and we may use our feelings to actually evaluate or make judgments or make decisions about which actions we should take in the future and what we should do about our relationships and so forth. But we can also apply something we call thinking mode. And thinking is complementary to feeling, but when you think about things, your feelings really aren't entering into it. The typical stereotype thinker, of course, might be the physicist who uh, builds atom bombs and doesn't feel anything about what the course of his actions will be. Uh, where a typical feeler would be the stereotype uh, uh, softy or the stereotype uh, person who is very sensitive, uh, uh, say a musician or a poet or something like that. And so we have this complementarity going on. Every human being has a bit of the poet and a bit of the physicist inside of them. So they tend to act, quote-unquote, rationally in a thinking mode, or they tend to act, 
quote-unquote irrational, in a feeling mode, which means not, it doesn't mean it's crazy. It just simply means you're not using your thinking mode. You're going on your feelings. Feelings are often attached to intuitions, for example. Okay, and your your purpose in helping me understand these two different modes of relating is what exactly? That I pop the quiff in different ways? Well, it's to let you know that regardless of what you think you are, however you classify yourself in any kind of way, that the opposite or complementary manner of looking at the world and yourself is always present so that you don't have to. There's nothing mandatory about you being or thinking of yourself as you presently do. In other words, you can pretend, if you will, that the universe, the world, your home, wherever you are, is a stage and you're an actor upon the stage. And you, by changing your act, so to speak, are changing the way you go about making observations of others and of yourself. So uh, Buddhists practice the action of compassion. Uh, Warriors and Marines practice the action of the warrior or the the killer. Uh, These are very different modes, but yet they're simply acts. They're actions that we take. The Marine is not necessarily a killer, and the Buddhist is not necessarily uh, a holy person. But they act that way, and as a result, observe themselves and and the world that way, and the world that comes into being for them fits that mode. So the Marine walks into the world of war, and the Buddhist meditator walks into the Buddhist monastery. So in terms of thinking and feeling, if I associate myself primarily with, let's say, being a feeler, you're saying that that is then creating a world because I'm experiencing the world through my feelings, and I could equally try experiencing the world through my thinking mind, and I would experience a different but equally valid world. Well, valid or not valid, uh, (laughs) validity is another judgment call. I mean, what is valid? Um, What what might be valid for uh, uh, a bunch of people in terms of uh, carrying out mathematical operations may have no validity in terms of determining how you feel about people that carry out operations in mathematics. <laughs> so validity is a question of, you know, of, of, of agreement between, say, you and others as to what should be the valid way of going about things. But both in this, and to answer your question shortly, both are equally valid. And the importance here is for us to understand how flexible our world is, how, how we impact it through the method of observation and relationship that we choose? Yes, it, yes, it's important to realize that. It's also important to realize there's resistance. It's also important to realize that things just don't change because you will or wish them to change. There is inertia. Uh, the whole por- the whole purpose of having a universe is to bring a resistance or inertia. I mean, matter itself is inert; it uh, resists movements and changes. So the whole and and our thought processes are like that; they will resist changes. So the whole point uh, of the of this is that if everybody got what they wanted instantaneously, we would be living in a wispy world of no material, and 
that may seem ideal to some of us who are burdened by the barrier, by 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 the by by the enormous weights we carry, both mentally and physically. But in a few hours of just doing that, you'd be very bored because everything you wanted you would get, and after a while you realize that wanting things and getting them aren't the same things, and then you realize that having them is not the same thing as wanting them or getting them. And they're not the same things. And after a while, you realize this is kind of boring. I mean, you know, where's the fight? Where's the battle? Where's the where's the resistance? Uh, if you know, how, you know, I want to, you know, I want to feel that I'm achieving something. I want goals. I, you know, that's part of our nature. So let's go on to the second insight from quantum physics that you think is life changing. Well, the second one is one I've actually already mentioned. And that is that there is a mind field which must be present in order for there to be a universe. And one, the, the most important thing you can learn to do is to identify with it rather than with your egoic consciousness. This doesn't mean that you lose your egoic consciousness, but you recognize it from a witness point of view. You identify with the minefield, and immediately certain things drop away. The fear of death drops away. You don't feel horrible that you're going to die, because in a way, you don't really die. You're back. Once you identify with that which is constantly there, it doesn't die. So you identify with the mind of God, the minefield, whatever you want to call it. So if you identify with it, then you have a power, uh, a kind of uh, ease with your life. Uh, that's maybe a good thing for people that are very stressed, but then again, it could be a bad thing because then you'd stop caring about, well, should I do this? Well, it doesn't make any difference because I'm already the mind of God anyway. Whether I live or die doesn't make any difference. Then you get into this other kind of apathy, which is often, uh, which we tend sometimes to find in spiritual belief systems. People get apathetic because they, they once they fall into that way of thinking, they, they stop thinking about what to do as an egoic self. So the whole idea is to identify with it, but <laughs> don't completely <laughs> identify with it. Uh, you have to understand that you are an illusion, but play the game anyway, because actually it's very boring just being the mind of God. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't do much. What's really exciting is being the mind of of Tammy or the mind of Fred or the mind of a listener or the mind of anybody who's got a sense of being in a body and a sense of doing something with their lives. Now, when you say the mind field, can you can you tell me, you said the mind field, the mind of God. Can you explain more what you mean by that? Well, the point is that, what first let me try to get at it from the point of view of, of, of quantum physics, because it arose, the idea came about in about the mid-60s, uh, it was discovered by a couple of physicists, one whose name is Peter Higgs, and actually today it's called the Higgs field. And we were, what physicists were interested in is how does matter come into being? How does mass arise? The reason that became interesting to them is because they realized that matter can go out of being. They realized that matter could be annihilated and disappear. Uh, we have so-called positron-electron annihilation events, and we have what's called positron emission tomography, for example, in 
typical diagnostic tool in hospitals. Uh, these are all based on the notion of matter and antimatter, so-called antimatter, uh, colliding and going out of existence by producing a burst of energy. So the whole idea then became, well, if matter can disappear like that, mass vanishing into just pure energy, then maybe we need to look at how matter came into being in the first place. And so what people began to realize is a kind of a picture, which, by the way, is in my book, Time Loops and Space Twists, which will be coming, which will be uh, in the bookstores March of, I know I probably shouldn't say a date on this program, depending on when it airs, but March 2011, you'll be able to see this book. It's explained more carefully there. But the whole idea is that uh, this minefield seems to interact with light, and uh, it interacts with light in a certain way. And it actually makes the light do a kind of a dance, a zigzagging dance. And as it zigzags, it makes it, it appears to be twisting and turning and spinning, and it appears to be solid. It starts to take on a solidified form, uh, kind of like a bubble appears in a liquid. This would be uh, kind of a form appearing in this minefield. So it's uh, light becoming material is the process we see happening. And we're just beginning to understand how that works. It's much more complicated than I'm, ex than I'm explaining right now, but that basically is it. I then made the made the, the 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 leap, which you know is my own speculation here, uh, that that process is also something which involves mind. That there's a an order which comes out, a recognition or a pattern which seems to come out, which I take to be the pattern of mindful activity or mind activity. And this is where I got the notion that the Higgs field is really the same thing as the, the mind of God. And what does it feel like to you, or how would you describe from the inside of your experience what it feels like to identify with the mind field? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because <laughs> I'm giving you all I think about it. Now, what does it identify? How does it feel to me? <laughs> well, it feels to me like me. <laughs> I am that process. So my experience of what I'm doing right now, the thoughts that are arising that are popping into existence by the ability of my throat to, con to constrict and open and have my vocal cords vibrate at certain frequencies, all of that, all those processes that I become consciously aware of, that's what it feels like. It feels like that. It senses like that. It intuits like that. It's what that is. That mystery, that whole question of who I am, what I am, and how I come to be in a state of asking that question, who I am, what I am, is a process. And that process is the minefield directing light into following a zigzag path, making into material processes and recognition of those material processes as a being, a sentient being separated in space and time. Now, you mentioned that when we know how to identify with the mind field, when this comes naturally to us, our fear of death doesn't exist anymore. And I'm curious, first of all, if this is true for you. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. It's been true for me for a long time. Uh, I, as soon as I began realizing what was going on here, uh, I, I, I simply accepted it. Well, that 
makes most sense to me. I, uh, you see, it doesn't make much sense that any, in fact, any other explanation that I can think of, including the materialist explanation that consciousness is a byproduct of material processes, that to me doesn't hold water. That to me seems totally wrong from many, many different perspectives. So as I try to boil through and try to figure out what is really going on, why am I having this experience of being alive, it, 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 it then dawns on me that that is what this field is doing, that I, I am that field. Uh, so once I took that in, at, at heart, I began to uh, to just play with life rather than <laughs> get caught in its, its web of illusion. So then, even without a body, even without a brain, this identification with the mind field will still be there. Yes, because it's there now. See, right now, you think you're the body, and you may, and you're experiencing a lot, a larger part of our of, of normal human experience is sensations, uh, movement of say arms or legs or. You know your voice. What all, all those sensations that you're having are of the body, but this mind field is not just of the body. It, it's if you were to remove all of those sensations one by one, you would still have the mind field present. And in fact, that's what I. That's what meditation is really all about. That's what spiritual seeking is all about. That's what Zen is all about. Is to remove the immediate environment of the body so that one can begin to see that which is perceiving rather than begins to see that which is perceived. Most of us are perceiving that which is perceived, but the perceiver of all that is not usually perceived until you can go into a state however you do it, meditation works very well, in which the removal of those kinds of perceptions takes place. They drift away. It's like, you know, meditators will tell you, when a thought arises, watch it as a cloud. Let it drift through. Don't get attached to it with the next thought. Let whatever comes up come, but don't get attached to it. So the whole idea of non-attachment arises very naturally, uh, into this notion of going into the mind of God, the one mind, the that which is perceiving rather than that which is perceived. Okay, let's move on to the third insight. I know you could go on and on and on, and I'm limiting you just to three, but you're well, you're well, playing the, along with actually, me, Actually, these Dr. are the Quantum. three main ones. I mean, it's funny that you picked three. Uh, <laughs> I would have a hard time if you picked four. Uh, I'd have, I'd have. Well, I, I could probably get, I could probably do it, but I, it would be stretching it a bit. Uh, but just with three, we can, we, we can go to the the third one. That everything is made of light, <laughs> and that is really what the universe is made of. I mean, the the fundamental ingredient. If you think about making a cake, for example, <clears throat> the cake is made by mixing together various ingredients. The universe of matter is made by mixing together various kinds of light. Actually, there's only two basic kinds. One we call uh, spin one half, and the other we call spin one. And the spin one kind of light doesn't interact 
very well with the mind of God field. Once it's released, it, it's, it's allowed to do its thing. It carries information. It becomes the medium by which we become aware of what's going on. Um, and it interacts with the spin one-half kind of light, which is zigzagging in the mind of God. So the mind of God is constantly buttressing and playing with the spin one-half kind of light. And the spin one-half kind of light then sends messages backwards and forwards using the spin one kind of light. These these notations of spin one-half and spin one uh, have to do with another kind of name. We call the spin one-half, when it light's behaving that way, we call them fermions. And when it's spin one, we call them photons or ordinary light. So these are just more nomenclature, but you don't have to know all that. Basically, that's how it works, that everything is made of light, and once once one understands that, then one uses light as the medium by which the message is composed. Okay, so the poet in me was very comfortable when you said everything's made of light, and this is our third point, but when you got into spin one and spin one-half... Oh, yeah, that's all, that's all physical. I totally lost you there, but also, how, sure. how do we know this, and what does this mean, spin one, spin one-half? Oh, yeah, you know. well, uh, it, it's an interesting question, and it's one I I've written a whole book about. To try to explain it. That, that's what the this uh, the, this uh, time loops and space twists is all is is all about. Um, to know why it's one half or one, these are what are called quantum numbers, and these quantum numbers arise in a very natural way from the mathematics of quantum physics. They're not something you can intuitively grasp and say, ah, now I understand why it's that way. The spin one-half uh, is, is, the story goes something like this. Um, spin one-half is a kind of an incomplete thing. It's trying, to get, it's trying to get more complete, and it does a funny kind of dance in doing that. And that dance we call electron. That's the dance of the electron. The electron, which is the particle inside of us, which makes all the atoms behave the way they do, makes atoms different, is responsible for the reason why you breathe. You breathe in oxygen because it has a tendency to hold on to electrons, and you need the electrons because the electrons are the things which are communicating the light inside of your body, etc. So these particles are, in a sense, incomplete these electrons are uh, incomplete, but yet they're very fundamental, and and they behave in this 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 kind of way. Uh, they uh, they can be visualized as if they were barber poles, and that sounds very funny. But remember the old-fashioned barber poles that yeah. were in front of the barber shop, and they would rotate with red and white stripes. Yeah, right. You, you do remember those? Right? I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Okay, you can imagine the spin one-half particle is, a, is like a barber pole. And if you watch the barber pole, you'll see that it's doing a couple of things. First of all, the stripes are moving, say, up the pole or possibly down the pole, depending on which way it's rotating. So spin one-half corresponds to uh, having two possible rotations. It could be rotating so that the barber pole stripes are going up, in which case we say it's plus one-half, 
or it could be rotating in such a way that the barber pole stripes are going down, in which case we say it's minus one-half. So in other words, a spin one-half particle can be either pointing up or pointing down, or it's barber pole stripes can be moving upward or moving downward. That's an important part of why electrons behave the way they do. They pair up in atoms so that when you start to build up the atomic uh, core, the atomic uh, orbits about every atom, they they always pair up. That's why I say each each one is incomplete. They want they want to pair up. They're always looking to find the opposite pair spinner so that they can feel more complete, so to speak. Okay, so uh, you can think of it that way. So, um, and you can also think of them in terms of having hands or being handy. Uh, having what's called uh, something we call a helicity. And a, it, 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 this refers to, uh, if you take, the say, the barber pole with the stripes moving upward and you grab hold of the barber pole with your right hand, your thumb will be pointing in the direction in which the stripes are rotating, okay? If the barber pole is spinning in the other direction and you grab hold of it, then uh, your right hand won't work. You have to use your left hand to get the direction right for the way that pole is spinning. So you have to play with this in your mind a little bit to figure it all out. But basically, uh, these light particles of spin one-half are like barber poles that come into existence. And they're always trying to complete themselves. And, And that's where we have this business of maybe ourselves feeling incomplete or seeking soul or seeking connection because the particles, the spin one-half particles of light of which we are made are trying to essentially go to the whole complete spin one world (laughs) in which uh, there is no more uh, of this game going on. And you might think of that as like the moment of death, or it could even be considered the moment of birth in which uh, this is first coming into being. So it's this gets a little metaphysical, but I, I think you have some idea of what I'm talking about. Now, how would you say that this understanding that everything in the universe is made of light, whether it's spin one or spin one-half light, mm-hmm. how does this understanding change or affect potentially the way we live our lives? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, It certainly has affected mine because the thing which I have always been engrossed with all my life is how does the universe work? How does it work? How is it that I'm here? What is going on? Is there God? If there's God, how do I discover God? If there's no God, what makes me draw, come to that conclusion, uh, etc.? These are the questions which bubble up through me. So as you ask yourself these kinds of questions and you begin to seek and find answers in which you have, of course, in physics, a mathematical understanding, and then you begin to try to piece them together in terms of the English language, as you begin to do that kind of activity, there's a feeling, a kind of a mystical feeling, a feeling of, uh, of I, I would call, great joy. Uh, it's a joyous feeling which arises. 
And it's almost too bad that most people in their everyday lives don't get a chance to experience this kind of joy because it's a wonderful feeling. It's very exhilarating. Um, it's feeling at one with God. It's knowing, you know, having a sense that you're getting an idea. You're getting to know how this all works. It's it's an act both of faith and also an act of rational belief. Uh, in other words, it's a rational act to do, but it inspires faith and it inspires uh, a feeling of well-being. So I would say that learning about how things are or learning how they are, how things work and how the universe gets made is inspiring. It gives you a feeling of well-being that you don't get by trying to figure out how a vacuum cleaner works. You may enjoy learning how a vacuum cleaner works the first time you take it apart and put it back together again, if you ever were to do that. But after you get the idea of how it works, it's pretty boring. But the universe always has surprises in it. There's always mysteries in it. So even as you get closer and closer to understanding it, there's always something which eludes your grasp. And I think that's what gives one inspiration and joy. Dr. Quantum, I'm curious in your own life, did your insights come because you read and studied about quantum physics and then you went, ah, oh, I get it? Or did you have mystical experiences or other kinds of personal insights and then you sought to have them confirmed through quantum physics? How has the process worked for you? Well, it's been a both-and kind of situation. Uh, if we go back to, to the first action, which is that there's a minefield and that you have choices as to how you can go about observing yourself and others. Once I began to observe myself through this, the action of what I'm talking about, this minefield, uh, this presence that I'm not really just a name or, or this person, but, but I'm something bigger than that. Uh, once I began looking at the life that way, experiences that I would normally be blinded to or would ignore or be unaware of began to occur. So more mystical types of experiences began to take place, and along with them came a greater sense of, I'm on the right path. I'm doing the right thing for me. This is what I need to be doing. I, want, I need to keep inquiring. I may not know why I'm inquiring about this particular thing right now, but I have the faith that I'm on the right path, so I'll keep going. So that both they, they go hand in hand. Once you choose to go on that path, after a while, experiences which take place for you that normally would not take place had you not chosen that path begin to take place, and then you have a reinforcement that you made the right choice. Can you share with us what you mean, what type of experience? Give an example. Well, there are many kinds. Uh, there are enormous numbers of them. Um, From your own personal life. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, some of them are, are kind of sad. Some of them are very uh, amazing. Uh, I don't know where to begin. I've had so many. Uh, Let's go with one of each, one of each variety, a sad one and, okay, an, well, and an ecstatic one. Okay, um, one of the most profound things that happened, uh, first of all, has to do with, with, with death. It's, all, it's ecstatic, but at the same time, you know, it, it's sad because you're dealing with death. Um, I've lost some people who were very close to me. I lost a son 
who was killed by a drunken driver when he was 25 years old. I'm sorry. Um, I lost both my parents. And because of this, where I was going with myself, I would get what are called lucid dream states in which these people would appear to me in several dream varieties as time evolved after their deaths. I would see these people. We would talk. We would have experiences together, and I would get some insight from what they were experiencing, assuming, of course, that what I was experiencing was them talking to me and not just an imaginal realm of my own mind playing tricks on me in some kind of uh, weird way. Uh, that gave me uh, kind of a faith that you know death was not the end of the road. So that's definitely one of the things that happened to me. I've had experiences when I was... Um, with shamans in various parts of the world, with ayahuasquero shamans in the jungle, in which I began to see that my personality had divisions in it, that I wasn't just one person, but there were several different, quote-unquote, beings inside of me, and each of them had their own way of thinking and being. Some of them were more negative, some of them were more positive, some of them were very cranky, some of them were very uh, sexy, some of them were uh, uh, feeling elated about everything, some of them were feeling dejected. I mean, these were different beings. They weren't, they weren't just feelings, they were actual beings that were me, that came over me, and I seemingly without my control. Once I got to see that these were beings of me coming into being, I was able to control that. And I, I no longer, for, for example, when somebody came in and said, that was a stupid thing to do, I would turn around and talk to it and say, yes, I know that was a stupid thing to do, but don't worry about it because I've got it handled. And then he would shut up. <laughs> in other words, once I, had a, once I acknowledged the critic inside of me, the one that was always complaining about everything, I, I was no, he was no longer in control. In other words, some people, when somebody something bad happens uh, to them, they have to smash the guy in the mouth, uh, or the typical you know road rage driver. You cut in front of me, you sob. I'm going to knock you. I'm going to kill you. That kind of insanity that goes on. People, if they recognize that isn't that's only a being that's come into being that they themselves can get rid of just by recognizing it. Uh, that makes it dissipate, makes it go away. So uh, one time on Larry King show, he asked me about depression. He wanted to know how could quantum physics help him with his depression. I said, well, you have to ask yourself a very simple question. You have to, when you're feeling depressed, you have to ask yourself this question. Who is feeling depressed? But you must not answer the question. Because if you answer the question, then you identify with the being who's answered the question. And what you want to do is stay away from that answering being because that's not going to lift you out of the depression. But merely asking the question will because to ask a question and to know the answer are complementary to each other. And as long as you're asking and not knowing the answer, whatever feeling that's arising in you as a result of answering the question will begin to dissipate. So you can actually cure yourself of depressive thoughts by simply asking yourself who is feeling this depression and not answering the question. And you have to work on it. You can't just 
do it once and say, oh, well, I'm done with it. You've got to keep doing it. Every time the feeling arises, who's, feeling this, who's having this feeling without answering it? The more you do that, the more you begin to get into this, what I call the mind of God. You get out of this. You, you ask the question and then you start hearing answers. What do you do with the answers you start you, you hearing? Just let, you just let them be, but you don't ask. You yourself just simply don't get caught with the answer. You don't answer the question. You don't, you don't say to yourself, that's the answer. You don't identify with the answerer. You keep identifying with the questioner. Okay. I love asking you these big questions, Dr. Quantum, because these are things that you've wrestled with and investigated and written books on. So we're going to move on, and I'd love to know what Dr. Quantum knows, the most the, the essential insights about time. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's... Time is the real biggie of this all, and uh, I'm going to skirt that. I'm going to talk about it. I'm, I'm going to explain what I know, but, but I have to skirt it because it's it, asking anybody to explain time is like asking a fish that is swimming in water and only knows the water, never has been out of water, never been hooked by a fisherman or something like that, to explain water to know that it's in water. It doesn't know that because that's been its total environment. We're like fish in water when it comes to being in time. Time is really, in a sense, our essential nature. And to recognize ourself is to, is to identify with what we call time. Now, I sneak up on it in the following way because I don't really know what time is. In fact, I know what it is as long as you don't ask me. Uh, that I think was it was uh, <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas, uh, maybe no, I can't remember which which priest it was from ancient times that was uh, asked that question and <clears throat> said that he knew he knew the answer is provided that you didn't ask him the question. <clears throat> but the 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 notion here is that. When you look at the way the Higgs field or mind of God and the spin one-half light play their game, the first thing you come to realize from Einstein's relativity theory is that anything which moves at the speed of light relative to us is not moving relative to itself. And not only that, Anything that moves relative to us will take a certain amount of time to go from one place to another. But from its point of view, there is no time passing at all. So for light, let's say a photon, which is born in the sun due to a nuclear reaction of some kind, and then comes and hits your eyeball and registers on your retina in some way, the birth of that photon and the death of that photon, which are eight minutes or eight and a third minutes apart in time, as far as we are concerned, for it, there was no time at all. No time passed, and it didn't go anywhere. Space and time do not exist for light. So here we see a real clear, I mean, this is relativity theory, and it's completely impossible to understand in commonsensical terms, 
uh, in my book, uh, I will explain that. Uh, but it, it has to be it has to be thought about. You can't just jump into it and think you've got it. Uh, when you grasp that, then you realize that time and space arise with matter. They don't. They're not there to begin with. They arise. So that means that time has something to do with the notion of experience or things arising. And that's about the best I can do with it right now. Now, I know in your book, The Yoga of Time Travel, you talk about this idea that it might be possible to, quote-unquote, cheat time. Well, what do you mean by that? How do we cheat time? Well, that, <laughs> that, is, that, that terminology of cheating time actually comes from ancient Hindu Vedic text. Uh, it's called Kalavankara, uh, and they actually uh, speak about it in that terminology. I thought it was very curious that they would call it cheating time. Uh, what the yogas, what these yogis apparently discovered was that they experienced no time passing for themselves when they, got it, when they went into these deep meditative states. Uh, time just like disappeared for them. They would go into it, and in the next moment they were coming out of it, and they didn't experience any time passing. And yet a whole day might have gone by. Uh, so they were in a different st- in that state of consciousness. They were what is called cheating time. They weren't experiencing time. Time wasn't grabbing hold of them and making them uh, bow down to it by endless thoughts and worries and consternations of what kind or another. Okay, and that that makes sense to me. In in your program with Sounds True, Doctor Quantum presents Do It Yourself Time Travel. There's this idea that we could travel into the future as well as into the past. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. How might especially we travel into the future? Well, that's a little more esoteric in a certain sense. In another sense, it's very common. Um, Every time that you make a choice to do something or to not, you have jumped into the future and in some way recognized what the actions of the future would be based upon the choices you're making now. Um, You also, at the same time, based on choices you make now, are recognizing what actions in the past could have been those that led to the choices that you're making now. We call those rationalizations of one kind. Uh, And so we, in making ordinary decisions about our lives, when we choose to do things, are really anticipating or jumping into the future and jumping into the past in order to bring credence or believability or sense of being in the present. So you really can't have the present without having both the future and the past coexisting, so to speak, at least at the level of mind. Now, physically, to make things work, requires tremendous amounts of energy and technology, which we do not have at this point. 
But as far as the mind is concerned, there doesn't seem to be any problem with it because that seems to be what we do. So we all anticipate the future in some way. We all uh, decide, well, I'm gonna, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Or, you know, that, that's a mon- very mundane anticipation of the future. But uh, uh, we, we, we do it every time we make a choice. Usually our choices are fairly immediate in terms of do I make a right turn or a left turn? I'm in my car. Uh, <laughs> what should I do now? Should I do this, do that? Uh, those are pretty immediate, and the future is just maybe a, a second or two ahead of you, and the past by which you rationalize that choice was just maybe a second or two behind you, and most of us live their lives calling that, well, I'm, I'm doing it now. I'm having my experience now. Actually, it's impossible to be here now. <laughs> I know Ram Das would kill me for that one, but <laughs> nobody can be here now because there is no such thing as now. Well, there is really is a time window in which we ourselves are constantly moving and experiencing both past and future in order to make sense of the present. Now, now that time window, though, is probably what someone like Ram Das or Eckhart Tolle means by now. I, I, it could be that's what they mean by now, but you, you see, it's a, it, it, you, you tell, I mean, it, it, you tell people be here now, and 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 what that meant is, you know, stop mental masturbation, stop worrying about what you did in the past. I mean, be here now, be smell the flowers, you know, wake up. Yes, that that's vital and true. My point is that in order to have that experience, there is a window of time which has to be present. And we can't have that experience without that window of time. There's some interesting experiments that were done by Benjamin Libet at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School, oh, more than 25 years ago, in which he proved and showed that uh, the way the brain signals various different parts of the body when we're having uh, an experience of some sort involves both the future and the past in its recognition of the present, and that if you don't have that, uh, or if you change that in some way, if you if you say block something in a, a short time in the future of an event, um, that the person won't even experience the event, and if you don't block it, he will. In other words, there is a a period of when a person experiences something now that's dependent on what is going to happen in the future. So even in our brains, we have this kind of window of time. And how big or how broad in terms of time that window is, uh, that's changeable. But it seems to be at least, it can be as wide as a half a second, and it's usually around, oh, 200, around 200 thousandths of a second. Now, these yogis who cheat time, aren't they in some way going out that window and staying out of that window for at least a period of time? Uh, yes, I would say that's a good that, that's a good way to think about it. Yes, they're definitely leaping out the window, and uh, they're floating, and they're not no longer they're no longer concerned about uh, the immediate sens- sensate world. Uh, yeah, I would say that's what they're doing, and that's what uh, meditation is basically teaching you to do. On the other hand, there's yoga practice, and in yoga practice, what the teacher tries to do is get you into your body, not out of it, tries to really get you to focus on what you're feeling in that part of your body, even down to 
the various organs of your body, not only the muscles, but, you know, feeling your liver, feeling your, your heart, uh, feeling your lungs. Uh, it, it's rather, rather amazing. And, and that works too, but that's a whole, that's a different direction to it. That's, that's like really exercising the window by opening and closing it a little bit each time. <laughs> okay. Now I'm with you and I'm also with you in terms of, the past and the future being right here with this present time window. But when I was talking about what might it mean to time travel, when I originally asked the question about the future, I was thinking of things like, can I travel into the 25th century and see what life is like? That kind of time travel. (laughs) Well, um, I don't know how to do that. Uh, so I can't really say that, uh, that you can do it, uh, I, in some sense, I don't see any problem with there being a 25th century in existence now, in some sense of now, now not being what we usually mean by the word now, but that the whole timescape, like a landscape, lies before us. But it's got to be a very blurry timescape. It can't be one which is pinned down because... Um, the field of consciousness has to kind of move through it. And maybe it is already doing it right now. We're just, you know, not aware that it's happening right now. But that's, you know, that's something that may indeed be true, but uh, I don't know how I can jump my consciousness to be there. On the other hand, I've had dream states (laughs) where I believe I did go into the future. Uh, where I witnessed things. Um, I even had uh, a state uh, in an ayahuasca ceremony in which I saw something happening in Peru six months from now, and I didn't know I was going to Peru at that time. And sure enough, about you know, a couple weeks later, I was invited to travel to Peru, and when I went there, I went to Machu Picchu uh, outside of Cusco, and witnessed what I saw in this vision. So it wasn't like, you know, I mean, I was seeing at least six months ahead of time. How would quantum physics explain that? Because I think people have had that kind of experience, like what you're describing. Actually, there is a quantum physics, people might object there's a quantum physics explanation for everything. But but in a sense, that's almost true. But there is a rather unique explanation school that's developed over the last 20, 30 years or so, it started with the work of an Israeli physicist whose name is Aharonov. And he's been working with a number of physicists in various parts of the world who's developed what's called the two-time quantum physics, in which what happens now is influenced by events that will occur as well as events that had occur, and that from both of these events happening, so to speak, the present event becomes determined. And he believes that this two-time kind of quantum mechanics is a way to explain uh, how uh, we have these kinds of experiences uh, of maybe the future and the past uh, when we have a, a like deja vu or maybe even a jamais vu experience, something like that. Jamais vu? Jamais Vu is a very interesting... Have you ever heard of the Jamais Vu? No. Well, Jamais Vu is never having had this experience before. 
Deja vu is is actually probably fairly common. A lot of people have deja vu, but jamais vu is a total surprise. <laughs> and wait, jamais vu is charming. It's the what you like to have is more jamais vu. I've never had that before. Well, uh, I think everybody has at least one jamais vu experience in their lives when they're very young. Uh, it, it might be the first experience of aha, or possibly when you first tasted something you never ate before, or possibly even your first orgasm. <laughs> Those would be jamais vu experiences, because okay. you never had them before. Very good. I just have one final question here for you. Our program is called Insights at the Edge, and I always love to know what people's current edge is. And what I mean by that, Dr. Quantum, is what's the question that you're asking? What's the edge of discovery that you're currently playing with? Well, I don't believe that I've yet completed this understanding of how the universe completely works. Uh, There's still some things, some details that are probably once revealed, once I can understand them better, will will, uh, make it easier for me to explain how it works in a better way than I have done so far. There's also something else which has been, been been missing in all this, and that's I haven't really gotten into gravity, the field which holds us to the earth, um, and how that works. In all of my explanations, I've left gravity out, because gravity still is a kind of a mystery, and uh, we don't really have a good theory, which includes quantum physics and gravity, that we really feel comfortable with yet. We're still grappling with that. So probably in the next couple of years, I will be grappling with improving my understanding of time loops and space twists and spin one half and spin one and that kind of stuff so that I can explain it better than I did so far and understanding how gravity plays a significant role in our consciousness because I believe it does. Uh, That's a wonderful answer, and I love it. And I'm also curious if there might be an edge for you personally, sort of more intimate way of answering the question, Some something that you're investigating that relates specifically to your own, not so much your research and your written work, but just your own being, your own life. Well, there's a continual ongoing recognition that I'm getting older. (laughs) And as I age, I'm beginning to see myself accepting more of who and what I am and accepting who and what I haven't accomplished rather than cursing the time. In other words, there's a kind of a, a mystical sense of presence which is arising as I go through life. And that, coupled with my intellectual interest into the nature of how God does it, uh, is what keeps me going. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Dr. Fred Allen Wolf. Here at Sounds True, we call Fred Allen Wolf Dr. Quantum. And Dr. Quantum has created three different audio learning programs with Sounds True. Dr. Quantum presents a user's guide to your universe. Dr. Quantum presents Meet the Real Creator, you, exclamation point, along with Dr. Quantum presents a do-it-yourself 
guide to time travel. Fred, Dr. Quantum, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome, Tammy, and thank you. I appreciate it very much. Uh, I love hearing your heart, your presence, and your great curiosity and discoveries. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.